Next year, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom will celebrate her 70th year as the sovereign of her country. She is currently the longest reigning monarch in the history of the UK in its 13 centuries of having a monarch. The previous longest before her was Queen Victoria, who was on the throne for 63 years, ending in 1901. Her influence on British culture spilled over into America during the time, including here in Florida. However, she never visited the United States. That was just not how the 19th century worked. We were at war with the British merely 50 years before Victoria came to power, but that was before the World Wars. And in the mid-20th century, as Elizabeth II came to power in 1952, the bond between Britain and America was strong. Plus, we were neighbors with her beloved Canada, so perhaps we should be friends. Soon enough, the Queen made her trip. In 1957, the Queen made her first trip to America in an official capacity. Alongside her husband, Prince Philip, they traveled across the Atlantic to participate in several ceremonies in North America. She spent some time in Canada, naturally, but then joined up with the first American president she met during her reign, President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower, who was 61 at the time, and Queen Elizabeth, who was three decades his junior at the age of 31, traveled with their partners to celebrate a shared holiday, the anniversary of the founding of Jamestown. Jamestown was the first permanent English settlement in what would become the United States. It was a small group, but Jamestown is, in many ways, the turning point of England and America as entities. Being that it was 1957, it was the 350th anniversary of the founding of the city, so the two leaders arrived in Virginia to honor the occasion. They apparently watched a game of American football and later, quote, they stopped in at a supermarket at the Queen's request, end quote. She returned again in 1976. By that time, several leaders had come and gone, and now Gerald Ford was the President of the United States. Ford had spent the last several years attempting to maintain the reputation of the United States after the tumultuous Vietnam War had left many Americans disillusioned. Not to mention that, but Ford was running for re-election. He had assumed power in 1974 when Richard Nixon resigned the post. Ford had only become vice president a few months earlier when Nixon's former vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned his post. So Ford had neither been elected to his role as vice president nor as president, and now, under all that chaos, he was attempting to actually win a position as the head of the executive branch by election. He had never won an election like this before. He needed some good press, and what would be more fun than celebrating the bicentennial? Honoring the 200-year anniversary of Independence Day, the whole country celebrated the bicentennial, and in July, the Queen was invited back to the United States. A banquet was held in honor of the anniversary, and for some reason, it was aired live on television. Well, things went poorly, and the whole affair was plagued with tech issues and poor weather and apparently boring speeches. One report says that the only exciting bit of the show was when famous television chef Julia Child had a segment. Nevertheless, the Queen did her job. She made her appearance. In 1983, the Queen returned again, albeit from a different angle 
literally. She was approaching the west coast of the United States now, and her massive yacht, the Britannia, docked in San Diego. She would spend the trip in and around the west coast, but mostly in California. This was at the invitation of President Ronald Reagan, who was once the governor of California before assuming his new role. She went all over the state, including my favorite spot, Yosemite, and Prince Philip even visited a location I adored as a child, the San Diego Zoo. They even took a trip on an aircraft carrier where the crew dressed in full naval regalia to greet the queen. It was a spectacle, the kind that always followed the queen wherever she went. And then, in 1991, nearly 40 years into her reign at the age of 65, the queen made a return to the United States, and this time she arrived to South Florida. She went to the Dry Tortugas National Park, one of our strangest and most fascinating natural sites. There, she was met with a litany of local officials and personalities, but the most important person there was an ambassador for a micronation based in Key West known as the Conch Republic. And when the Queen of England herself came to town, there was no one better suited to meet the Queen than Wilhelmina Harvey. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is part one of our two-part finale about Wilhelmina Harvey, Key West, and the Conch Republic. I've spoken with a Key West historian who knew Wilhelmina in her lifetime, and precisely why she was the exact person to meet the Queen of England 30 years ago. But to understand why Wilhelmina was there that day, you have to understand the world that led to that moment. So, this is part one, The Conks. In the city of Naples, right off Tamiami Trail, there is a strip mall with a little restaurant inside. It's called Grouper and Chips, and I stumbled upon it a few years ago when I essentially begged my dad to drive me to a restaurant that was serving a Florida delicacy, a conch fritter. In a typical recipe, it's made with simple batter mixed with onion, pepper, celery, garlic, and most importantly, chipped pieces of conch meat. They're then made into a ball and fried. I'd never had them before I visited Grouper and Chips all those years ago, and I had a gut feeling that it would provide the perfect fritter to start my journey. I was correct. Their conch fritters are spectacular, and I'm sad I haven't returned recently. It's been far too many years. In fact, the last time I was there was when I was searching for the skunk ape about two and a half years ago. I miss those conch fritters, especially now that summer is just on the horizon. That, for me, is an essential summer food. Now, that word, conch, spelled C-O-N-C-H, has many meanings, especially in South Florida. We've all seen a conch shell. They are those beautiful swirled shells with a somewhat pointed top and a large lip along the length of it. It's genuinely impossible to describe what a conch looks like because its shape is so unique. It's just one of those natural things that boggles your mind that it's created organically. Conchs are found throughout the Caribbean and are a frequent delicacy of cuisine in that area, especially in the Bahamas. The conch has several uses. First of all, you can eat the creature inside. 
That creature is technically a snail, and the most prominent in the species in terms of dining is aptly named the Queen Conch. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service describes the queen conch as, quote, soft-bodied animals, end quote, and are related in some part to, quote, clams, oysters, octopi, and squid, end quote. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service also points out that due to a slow speed at which conchs mature and their prevalence in shallow water making them easy to harvest, the conch is highly susceptible to overfishing, leading to a reduction in population. Especially in the early part of the 20th century, the population of Queen Conch in the Caribbean and the waters around the Keys rapidly dropped. It was such a delicacy in the cuisine that soon enough, people around the Florida Keys began pulling in less and less conch at the various conch fisheries in the area. Every year, the total pull was down until it became a crisis. The conch fisheries themselves collapsed with no reliable population for them to harvest. By 1971, the state banned commercial conch fishing, and 14 years later, in 1985, they banned recreational conch fishing as well. While conch remains a popular meat here in Florida, conch itself is actually imported from the Caribbean nowadays. Live conch harvesting is still illegal in Florida. As you can tell, Conch is important to the Florida Keys, but not just in the food or the shell. The people of Key West themselves often wear the title of a conch, and that is, as you'd expect, quite the story. It begins, in a sense, at the American Revolution. We've discussed the American Revolution at length this season, from the colonies of East and West Florida, to the explorations of La Salle, to the usage of bald eagles as our national bird, and would you look at that, here we are again. If you recall from the first episode of this season, East and West Florida were British holdings at the start of the American Revolution. They were invited by the Continental Congress to join up with the cause of revolution, but declined the invitation as the 13 colonies rallied. Many British settlers at that time believed that the revolution wasn't their fight and remained quote-unquote loyalists. They were given another name, Tories. Tory, spelled T-O-R-Y as a term, originated in the 17th century to describe a more conservative political leaning in Britain specifically, especially when in relation to royalty. When the American Revolution ended in 1783, the Floridas were handed back to the Spanish and the British Tories sought refuge from the Americans who found them to be enemies of the state. They were loyal still to the crown and there was nowhere really in this new American nation to hide. So, many of them wound up fleeing Florida entirely. Many went to Jamaica, which was itself a British colony, though many actually crossed the Atlantic and went back to Britain itself. Thousands, however, arrived in the Bahamas. They departed from St. Augustine, or possibly from St. Mary's, Georgia, which we've discussed on this show in the past. So many were fleeing that we aren't entirely sure where all of them left from. When they arrived to the Bahamas, a British colony, some ships wrecked on the reefs, but most arrived safely to begin their new lives. Historians aren't clear on how many British refugees and enslaved persons arrived to the Bahamas at this precise moment in the cascading fallout after the war, but some estimates put it around 10,000. In 1833, Britain passed the Emancipation Act, ending slavery in British lands, including on the Bahamas. In the United States, however, slavery persisted. Many enslaved persons seeking freedom would cross the short expanse between Florida and the Bahamas and find refuge and freedom there. 
It's around this time that the word conch starts drifting around, and again, we aren't entirely sure how. The best guess is this. There were thousands of people now living on the Bahamas, which was a place known for its prevalence of conch and its usage of conch in food and in the collection of the shells. In my opinion, it's a little like the way that oranges have become synonymous with Florida, we just have a lot of that specific thing. In that way, conch becomes synonymous with those who were living on the Bahamas. It became a title, even though some suggest that it may have been used as a derogatory word. On the website of the Conk Tour Train, which runs on Key West today, they claim that the origin of the title conch is the following. The British colonists living on the Bahamas were prospering until the British crown imposed a new tax on imported food, akin to the taxes that contributed to the launch of the revolution. Those living on the Bahamas, quote, said they'd rather eat conch than pay taxes, end quote. I don't know if that story is true, but I like it either way. It's important to note here that the Bahamas, Cuba, and Key West make this trio of island collections, all relatively equidistant from each other. And naturally, people were crossing over that expanse of water all the time. If you look at them on a map, they really make a little triangle between their three locations. Those who were living on the Bahamas, however, found that it was difficult to farm the way that they did in the States. The Keys, however, were a great place to fish and cut timber, and the trip was pretty short and easy. Eventually, many Bahamanians took up residence in the Keys themselves, founding new communities on the Little Islands, especially on Key West. When Florida became an American colony in 1821, the question of what this little spot of land was good for became a big one. A man named Juan Pablo Salas, who was serving as the Spanish governor of Cuba around that time, had actually sold Key West. Naturally, he accidentally sold the island to two different people. <laughs> That's a story for another day, but as these two men feuded over who actually owned Key West, the U.S. Navy sent a brand new and, I think, perfectly named boat called the USS Shark. It sailed along the Atlantic, and the question of who owned Key West came to an end. An American flag had been planted in the soil. Key West was now an American property. With it came all of Key West's sibling islands, our Florida Keys. The Bahamanian residents of Key West kept their title, kept their name, and the idea of being a conch became a point of pride. Today, those born in the Keys get to wear that title still. If you are born in the Keys, you are a conch. If you are born somewhere else but live in the Keys for an extended period of time, you are a freshwater conch. Either way, so long as you are living in the Florida Keys, you have earned the title. You are a conch. And so we jump 160 years through generations of life on the beautiful Florida Keys. Over the subsequent century and a half, the Keys change time and time again. Newspapers pop up and fade away. The economy develops to a peak and fades away. The American Civil War arrives to town, but the Keys don't fall to the Confederacy, who also eventually fades away. By the end of the 1800s, Key West was the largest city in the state of Florida. By the turn of the century, Key West is connected to the rest of the state as our old pal Henry Flagler completes his overseas railway, making transit from Key West to Jacksonville a straight line. 
And then the Cuban Missile Crisis raises tensions in the Florida Keys as our proximity to Havana becomes a focal point. Our proximity to our neighbors to the south has always been a part of life in the Keys. The jump between Havana and Key West is less than 100 miles. The USS Maine, the boat that exploded and launched the Spanish-American War, launched from Key West. It was easy to get between the Florida Keys and Cuba before the Cuban Revolution in the 50s, whether by boat or by plane. But by the mid-20th century, with Fidel Castro in charge and the Cold War still burning at the heart of American foreign policy, the short 90 miles between the Florida Keys and the northern beaches of Cuba felt like a light year apart. That is, until the spring of 1980. Actually, 41 years ago, tomorrow. There is a port near Havana called Mariel. It's just across the water from Key West, a short trip that so many other Cubans had made decades earlier in the years following the Cuban Revolution, fleeing the Castro regime. On April 20th, 1980, the government of Cuba under Castro announced that any Cuban that wanted to emigrate to the United States were welcome to board boats at Mariel and cross the ocean. Florida naturally was the closest way in. This was not a random decision by the Castro regime. Things had been in free fall on the island in the months leading up to that point. Housing shortages and rising unemployment led to the Cuban economy tanking. In the midst of this, a group of Cubans boarded a bus and smashed through a gate into the Peruvian embassy, seeking asylum, meaning they were seeking legal protection from another government due to fear of their own country's system. In the process of doing this, of breaking through the fence into the embassy, a Cuban guard was killed when a crossfire broke out. The Peruvian embassy protected the Cubans who led the attack and were seeking asylum. The Cuban government wanted the assailants detained, but Peru granted them asylum and refused to give them up. Then, the Cuban government abandoned the Peruvian embassy, taking all their guards away, and 10,000 Cubans flooded in. They also wanted asylum to be free from the Castro regime. With other countries coming in to help Peru with this task, Castro decided to open the port of Mariel and allow boats to come pick up anyone from the island who wanted to leave. Naturally, relatives in the United States of those seeking to flee scrambled to hire boats and transport, and soon, people were making that fateful trip from Cuba to the southern coast of Florida. The process itself was exceedingly complicated, as immigration issues always are when it comes to the United States. These people were seeking asylum from Cuba, and several other countries were involved in taking refugees in. Sometime in the summer of 1980, months into the boat lift, a report came in that some of the refugees were criminals who had been released from prison to cross the water, leading to the U.S. Coast Guard creating a blockade around Florida, but many boats still slipped through. Castro had, indeed, deported people that his regime considered undesirables. In the official newspaper run by the Cuban Revolution, they call for the following people to leave Cuba, quote, criminals, lumpen proletariats, anti-socialists, bums, and parasites, end quote. At the same time, President Jimmy Carter was attempting to be as welcoming as possible, claiming the U.S. would welcome the refugees, quote, with open arms, end quote. Castro called his shot and possibly took advantage of Jimmy Carter's words. He began deporting convicted persons, patients at mental hospitals, anyone who identified as gay, and sex workers. Castro called these people trash and wanted them off his island. Quote, up to 20,000 had criminal records and thousands had served time in mental institutions. End quote. 
whatever Castro's intent was, it certainly had an impact on Carter's reputation. Many people started pushing back against Carter's open arms policy. Needless to say, it was chaos. The American people became antsy and uncertain about the people coming in, which was likely an intentional optics move by Castro. By October of 1980, an agreement was struck and the boat lift was over. It was the most Cubans to have ever crossed into the United States at one time in history. All told, over 125,000 Cubans, alongside 25,000 Haitians, made the trip. 27 of the people fleeing Cuba died, half of them dying in a tragic capsizing of a boat. Many of these refugees wound up in refugee camps across the United States. Most, however, simply entered life in the United States. The demographics of South Florida drastically changed, and as many sociologists have examined in depth since then, the Marilito, as they came to be known, redefined life in Miami. I've attached a link in the description to a column in the Miami Herald by Fabiola Santiago, who discussed the changes to Miami on the 40th anniversary last year. It's been 40 years, but the impacts of this movement changed Miami forever. In the years following the boat lift, the sheer proximity of the Keys to the rest of the Caribbean remained at the forefront of people's minds. There are many problems at the core of the American consciousness, but this is certainly one of them. For centuries, now and then, the treatment of immigrants coming into this country has been complex at best and inhumane at worst. The situations following the Mariel boat lift were no different. In the early 80s, there was now a concern, apparently, that more immigrants would be flooding toward the southern border of Florida, especially to the distant and somewhat isolated islands of the Florida Keys. This raised suspicion in the ranks of the United States Border Patrol, who became concerned that trouble was brewing within the Florida Keys. Some historians have noted that, in this time, there was indeed some groups running narcotics through the waters south of the Keys, but U.S. Border Patrol wasn't exclusively cracking down on narcotics. They were searching for, quote, illegal immigrants, end quote, passing into the Keys. So to crack down on what they believed to be a weak point in the United States border, U.S. Border Patrol created a roadblock on April 18, 1982, almost two years to the day after the beginning of the Mariel boat lift. If you've never visited the Florida Keys, you should know there is only one way in and out, and Border Patrol set up their roadblock at the exact crux of that road in Florida City, on US-1. The backup lasted for miles, effectively halted tourism, and essentially removed the people of Key West, the proud conks, from any autonomy in the coming and going of their city. Their permission was not asked, and naturally, they were furious. It took less than a week for the people of Key West to mobilize. The roadblock by Border Patrol began on a Sunday. By the following Friday, the people of the Keys seceded from the United States and formed their own nation as a protest to the behavior of the American government. That was the beginning of the Conch Republic. Next week, part two, the Republic.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. I am so glad for all of the new listeners that have hopped onto the show this season. It really means the world to me. There are some fantastic episodes in the back catalog that you have to check out. If you're looking for something similar about Miami or about Key West, I have discussed Key West at length in the episodes about Henry Flagler, and I have done many episodes about Miami, about the Miami Dolphins, and perhaps one of my favorite episodes about Miami history, exploring Miami's relationship to Disney's cartoon, The Orange Bird. I have attached some links to those episodes in the description below. Go give them a listen. We talked a lot about the Mario Boatlift in this episode, but there is so much more to be discovered in that story. It was six months of movement and change and politics. I have included some links in the description of the episode that you should go and read because this event is fascinating and expansive and we are definitely going to return to it sometime in the very near future. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I say my email for you to reach out to every week, and if you've considered doing it and haven't, I would like to tell you that I'm working on some episodes next season that are exclusively on the docket because listeners have reached out to me and said, hey, you should write an episode about blank. For example, there is going to be an episode next season about Florida's lighthouses. And the reason that episode even crossed my mind is because a listener reached out to me and told me that I should cover that topic. So I'm going to. If you have something you want to hear on this show, reach out to me at that email. I am genuinely looking forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Tom Hambright. You didn't hear his voice on this episode, but our interview that we had influenced the creation of this story in the first place. You'll hear from him and his expertise all next week. He was such a treat to talk to, but we'll get there next Monday. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, next week, part two of our exploration into the life of Wilhelmina Harvey, the final episode this season. I will see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Get your vaccination as soon as you are able. And please, drink more water. Take care of yourself. <laughs>